four, three, two, one, and we are back for our final response video to the BBC's The Reckoning about Jimmy Savile, the dramatization. We saw the final episode aired tonight on BBC from nine till 10. If you do want to watch it, it's on iPlayer, all four apps. Dr. Das was with us on episode one. He's kindly returned for episode four. My dad was with us on episode two, who was in episode two, and Ron Swanson for episode three. So if you want to check those out also, Dr. Das's links for his YouTube channel and his socials, books, etc., are in the description box below this video. So huge thank you for coming back, Sean. No problem, Sean. It's always a pleasure. So now you've watched the whole thing. Yeah. What what were the most chilling moment or moments for you? Um I I think just basically the creepiness and yeah just the 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 scenes where he's picking victims and you know what's going to happen right because well first of all we all know what happened with Jimmy Savile but also because it was a bit repetitive. So there's something kind of really voyeuristic but but slightly made me feel a bit dirty just watching it knowing that he's about to pick a victim and that they usually young women I think there was, there was at least one young boy and they're quite innocent and they're really excited to see him and you know what's going to happen to them I thought that was the most creepy bit of the whole thing yeah I, th I think in episode three yesterday uh the boy scout the girl in the church those scenes really hit me in the guts and today I almost burst into tears when the girl from Duncraft school the girls school when she got the letter in the mail saying no further action and, and as she was opening it, i knew it was going to say that and i was just so enraged that she'd yeah. been brave enough to report him and then absolutely got shut down by the cops but at least they persevered in the long run the duncraft girls because they were instrumental in getting it into the media yeah. So I had a couple of criticisms in general about the programme now that I've seen it. And we've actually, they're linked to what, what we've been talking about already. One thing that I think was, I personally thought was done a bit, I don't know, I don't know if callous is the right word, but it didn't, it seemed a bit formulaic was the way that the victims were portrayed. So what I'm saying is, is, is the way that he approached victims, what happened with them and their, and the aftermath afterwards of them crying, it was all really, really similar. And I kind of get that it probably was like that, but it felt really formulaic. I would have liked to see, especially, you know, as a psychiatrist, I would have liked to see a bit more, a bit something a bit deeper and a bit less obvious about how the victims were affected. So, you know, maybe looking into a bit more into their lives. It felt like they appeared on screen, got abused by Savile, then, you know, we saw them crying and then they were kind of forgotten about. There were a couple of flashbacks later on when he came back on TV. But I think it would have been more interesting to learn about the wider impact of their lives, especially that young girl who took her own life. Like, you know, there's a scene of her mother crying, but you know, that's obvious. That's not clever or particularly deep writing because we all know what Jimmy Savile did. It's not new to us, but I, so I think this program could have spent more time reflecting on the deeper consequences like long-term alcohol and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, alcohol abuse, you know, problems with sexual boundaries, problems with relationships. Those to me would have been a bit more interesting. Well, supposedly the program was delayed because they were putting more emphasis on the survivors. But like you said, there wasn't enough emphasis. And the way they distilled the story of Kalerma Calpine, the girl who ended her life, down to just showing it as Savile the Lone Wolf trapping her in the corridor is ridiculous. In Untouchable, we interviewed Kelly Gold, who was her friend and fellow Top of the Pops dancer. And she read the diary that her mom got her hands on. And she said 
the BBC staff members were steering them all into this area where there was alcohol and picking out which girls were going to go with who. So there was a lot more complicity and co-conspiratorial behavior by the BBC than the show presented. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another big one of my criticisms. So if you remember when I was on here last Monday, one of your uh, guests, one of your one of your viewers asked specifically, do you think the BBC will take culpability? And my answer back then was, I really don't know. We've only just scratched the surface because he'd only just started getting on TV, Savile, at the end of the first episode. Uh, and I have to say, I'm a bit disappointed, really. I think they took a bit of an easy route. So to be specific, there were a couple of sort of awkward conversations between BBC staff, but they basically went along the lines of, oh, it's all rumours, there's no evidence. And I think one of the BBC commissioners said something along the lines of, oh, these rumours were followed up or investigated by our lawyers, they didn't find anything, so we can only trust the evidence we've got. I think they really sort of sidestepped the opportunity to, to show exactly what you said. So. Um, as well as you saying that, I've heard from other sources that the that the, some people within TV world were directly involved. So they they literally not only turned a blind eye, but they helped him procure vulnerable victims. Whereas the way they did it in the reckoning, it just felt like you know the easiest way to say, all right, we're a bit responsible, but let's just not focus on that. Let's quickly move on to something else. Yeah. Do you think the BBC took not just the BBC, but TV um, the TV industry took enough responsibility in the reckoning? They never do in any of these situations, Jarm. I think that they monetize these people and squeeze every last penny out of them. And they do that knowing what's going on behind the scenes. They only cur when the public are about to find out. When the public are about to find out, that's when they rinse hands of them and claim that they never knew and bring in the PR crisis people and say that it's all going to change and the culture's going to change and there's going to be new laws and internal regulations in effect, yet it goes on and on and on, as we have seen uh, recently. But we are live with Dr. Sham Das, so if you do have any questions for him, please put them in the chat, wherever you are watching this in the world. And first question is from Wendy Davies. Why does he look to us so creepy and vile when we look at his images now, but what he didn't back then? I mean, that's true, isn't it? Because we were raised on him and this Benny Hill kind of humour. And when mm. we look at those clips now... You know, in the cold light of present morality, it's hideous. He's, he's, you could see clearly what he's about, but back then we couldn't. Why is that, Shaham? Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, because I think that he almost seemed so ridiculous and silly in the way that he presented himself and his haircut in the tracksuits that he kind of seemed asexual, I think. So he didn't seem like an obvious kind of flirtatious predator like for example a russell brand character who's hypersexualized he seemed the opposite of that i think he's kind of you know asexual so i think that's one thing another thing that we can't ignore is the misogyny of the times you know so in some interviews he would say uh, i can't remember the exact quote but something along the lines of you know i never want to settle down with a woman i'll find a, a, a different woman every night or you know i'm I, uh, he sort of hinted towards his sexual life but the but because of the times, I think the other presenters, present uh, presenters, presenters, sorry, just laughed along, and it was all kind of you know a, a, a men's joke. Whereas nowadays, that rightly would be seen as quite a quite an offensive thing to say. So I think it's the part of the times as well. Because one of his cliches was, "I'm feared in every girl's school in the country." And then at the end, that quote was thrown back in his face 
when they dramatize the author Dan Davies confronting him. But I've just watched a video on your channel, Dr. Das, whereby you were unhappy with that dramatization because it was untrue. So how did you find that out? Uh, which bit? Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. You know, where the the journalist, uh, the author Dan Davies, is questioning him at the end, and yeah. he's, he's like threatening him. He's saying, "I uh, know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But in, in in your video, you said that was complete yeah. dramatization and it was untrue. Yeah. So one of the there's I've got like several criticisms of the of the reckoning. A few which I've already talked about. One of them I think is that they it appeared to me that they were trying to ramp up the drama towards the end, so it kind of felt like this race against time so what would happen we knew that jimmy Savile was going to die um, and he also got ill towards the end of the reckoning but this uh, reporter dan was about to expose him as well so it was like i can kind of understand why they did that because you need to have some sort of tension some sort of you know big showdown or, or um, um big kind of moment of uh, of anxiety for the main protagonist to make it an interesting drama but we all know that didn't actually happen. You know, he, he got away with his crimes. There was no risk of him being exposed. And in fact, there was a delay. There was a huge delay between him dying and the truth actually coming out. So it felt a little bit forced for me. It felt like they were just trying to make the ending a bit more exciting than it actually was. Yeah, it definitely felt forced for me. But then they juxtaposed it with the magnificent turnout at his funeral, which showed mm. that the public didn't have a clue. You know, Prince Charles is chiming in. And all these other high-profile people are chiming in. And like you said, there was a delay before it all came out. All right, so next question, Firemoon42. Is Jimmy Savile almost unique in terms of victim profile? Um, yes, I think he's quite unique for a, number, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because the types of victims that he selected were very, uh, there's, there's a wide spectrum. Right. It didn't really show it that much in The Reckoning. The Reckoning, they were pretty much all young girls, apart from one um, Boy Scout boy. Um, but in reality, we know that he had both genders. He had a mixture of ages. There were suspicions. I don't think it was ever proved about necrophilia, that kind of thing. Oops, sorry, I'm not supposed to say that word away. Uh, about being amorous towards, uh, towards corpses. Uh -huh. say that. Um, so that makes him very unusual. And to me, that suggests that it's more about power than it is about sex so you know he doesn't have a type of victim he just goes for whatever kind of um, opportunity is available so that's one thing and the other thing was just the very prolific nature because people who who have those kind of sexual proclivities and are the p-words they are limited in their ability to commit commit abuse over the years but the very fact that number one he was famous and number two he got to travel around because of all his tv work and all his charity work and even going into hospitals meant that he was exposed to a new batch of victims on an almost daily basis. So, so the range of victims and the number of victims, I think, uh, make him quite unique. God, that was, you just reminded me, that was the other part that almost brought me to tears in tonight's episode, was when the Boy Scout had grown older and he was watching it with his wife and he saw Savile in the Big Brother house. Yeah. And that just triggered him and it showed other survivors who were getting triggered by that as well. Uh, I wonder if that conversation were with Dan, where he said he, he'd made a mistake, but he'd managed to shut everybody up. I wonder if that was manufactured as well. A bit disappointed that they did that, to be honest. I think that, that's a, a good observation by you. Um, yeah. Claudia is asking, Dr. Das, do you think Steve Coogan captured Savile's personality? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I said this in the, in when we had our chat last week. I think one of the strengths for this program was Steve Coogan's uh, acting. So you've got to make the character, the central character, believable, right? So if he's just completely creepy and disgusting and vile, and that's all he is, then that's not really Jimmy Savile because part of the reason he was so good at doing what he did was because he was able to switch on the charm when he wanted to you know he had charmed some of his victims who charmed people around him like nurses as we saw in the reckoning but he'd also charm like the top brass in, in the bbc that's why he became so successful so that's one of the reasons i think steve coogan did an excellent job because he was both uh creepy and vile and kind of charming and confident and flirtatious at the same time Next question is from Amy. Why would any parent let their child go off with a complete stranger, famous or otherwise? So in episode two, that was the one that my dad played a bit part in. And my dad told me this before it was published. He said the, the most disgusting thing that, that affected him the most when he was on the set was watching the Mur of Scarborough, the ice cream parlor guy and Savile and the parents and the kid. And then, you know, asking the parents permission and the parents just letting him walk off. Seeing the arm around, walking off with the kid really affected my dad. And yeah. um, so tying into this question, why would parents let their kids do that with complete strangers, even if they are famous? Well, I think I think the fact that he's famous is is a big, big factor. I think most parents, even back in, in that time period, wouldn't have let their kid go off with a complete stranger. But the very fact that he's kind of touted as this family friendly guy that everybody knows that does all this work for charity I think has a big part of it so it's not it's not just him being famous but what he's famous for for being this charitable kind of uh, you know altruistic individual but I do also think it was it was partly to do with the times you know um like I I grew up in the 80s uh, and the early 90s and you know I think it's fair to say that parent that parents in general were a lot more relaxed and a lot less anxious you know i'm sure it was similar for you sean we would just we'd just go out in the mornings on our bikes and our parents didn't know where we were until we got back for dinner from like 6 7 p.m nowadays we've obviously got mobile phones but separate to that i think there's a lot more concern about uh, these kind of offenders and about the potential of kids getting you know beaten up or abducted or whatever um, i'm not saying it didn't happen back then i think it did but it just wasn't part of the of the zeitgeist back then i think parents just just assumed that kids would be safe and would be able to look after themselves what do you yeah, think because when Savile attended some events that he'd been invited to by certain councils, he would tell them that he would only attend if he had a tent up for him and in the tent next door were teenage girls and the parents were going along with this and he was getting it and there was descriptions. I think it's in plain sight, the book of Savile entering these tents in the middle of the night and trying it on with these kids. Jesus, that's insane. That really is insane. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I can see why I can see why like if a parent didn't know that Jimmy Savile did what he was doing and they had a teenage kid, boy or girl, who was exciting to meet him, especially remember that he did this show where he was seemingly helping kids achieve their dreams with Jim will fix it. I can understand in that set of circumstances why a parent might want their kid to meet Jimmy Savile, but what you're saying is different. I mean, you know, it seems like some parents are openly allowing their children to be around that kind of behavior. And I just, I don't have an explanation for that, to be honest. Wendy Davies is asking, how is it that the BBC is able to continue to exist when it is allowed and actually assisted these various people to prey on innocent people? Uh, <laughs> good question. I guess, 
I guess because it happened a long time ago, the people who were in charge, responsible, are no longer working there, I think is one of the main factors. Question from Angela. I've heard his relationship with his mother was close. How close was it? Because he stayed with the dead body, didn't he, for quite a while? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that, that was definitely for, at the forefront of the reckoning was the relationship with her. I'm not sure if it was a bit forced or not. So... Uh, again, I think we talked about this last week, but there was a scene in the first episode where she's confessing to a priest that she basically doesn't love him uh, and that she any kind of love she does has is conditional. That may have happened, but I think it's a bit kind of on the nose for her to have said that in the reckoning because in reality, we don't know whether she ever directly said or thought that. Uh, but but regardless, there's definitely something about that relationship, wasn't there? The fact that he was a single man throughout all of his life, that he lived with her when he didn't need to. Um, in the reckoning, she was quite horrible to him mostly, but he was really sort of loving towards her. It was all very sort of twisted and convoluted, wasn't it? How how? So I know you've done more research on his earlier childhood than I have. How realistic do you think the betrayal was of their relationship from the reckoning? Well. He was the youngest of seven kids and he was considered a miracle child because he survived this mysterious illness whereby his eyes wouldn't close. Uh, his eyes were open um, day and night and they thought he was going to die and they prayed. So, you know, it, it seems that he was esteemed uh, as a very young child. Whether that changed over the years, I don't know because it's hard to find any documentation of it because he was so secretive. But like you, I'm skeptical of these narratives, especially the confessional scenes, because even though in the confessional scene where he goes in himself and he says he's asking for a friend, I don't think he's the type of person that would have done that. I don't yeah. think he would ever have given any indication to anyone other than people that he knew were active at it, such as the you know the guys that he dropped. We saw him drop. Uh, his sidekick from earlier on. We saw him drop the Mur of Scarborough. Mm, yeah. um, you know, other than, other than his accomplices, I don't think he would have just told a random priest, um, you know, that I'm asking for a mate, that, that kind of thing. I thought it was unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what they were trying to show in the reckoning was that maybe some part of him was conflicted and probably and felt guilty. And as far as we know, that that is possible. You know, even the most uh, even people that do horrible things from my experience of assessing off offenders doesn't mean that they don't have a tiny part of them that feels bad about it so I'm not saying that didn't happen but I suppose it's quite hard to express that kind of thing in a drama isn't it without an external conversation so I suppose the uh, the priest is quite a convenient um, sort of setup for that because there were quotes from him on talk shows whereby he was saying when I'm at the pearly gates they're going to say, oh, you've done all these things, and but you've also done all these other things, and then they're going to let him in. So yeah. I, I guess there was something on his mind. They said there's yeah, a brain yeah. of, yeah. And also, uh, in I think it was one of the victims, like the real-life victims that said, because you know they had the little snippets, the clips of them at the end and the beginning of some episodes. Uh, one of them said something along the lines of, I think he did all this charity work in his head to kind of make up for or to to um, to counteract all the evil things that he did and uh, that's quite a, a well-known psychological process we call it cognitive dissonance it's when you have different I opposing ideas in your head that that can't really exist but you make them you force them to exist so it could be exactly that he could be i mean you know absolutely i think he did a lot of his charity works for the opportunities to find victims but on top of that in addition i think part of him probably 
did it so that deep down he felt more justified in what he was doing. It's like an easier way to excuse his own behavior in his head. So Amy's wondering whether you are thinking that Savile knew he was going to die, so he lied to the journalist. Um, lied to the journalist about what, sorry? Which bit? Just about, about his life. Um, I mean, I think he would lie to the journalist anyway, regardless of whether he thought he was going to die or not. Because he was living a double life, and all he could reveal was one side of that. Yeah. We've got um we've got a comment here from Red Dawn who's got somebody in Leeds worked in Leeds so let's read this. I was hitting the roof of the BBC coverage of this Savile repro and it is despicable as is the BBC and free speech should continue and stop this ludicrous nonsense. I was in the media. Sorry, but my story is not how you would imagine. But I did not like him at the time, and neither did a friend of mine who worked on Leeds radio after leaving the South working with me. And she stressed how disgusting this man was at the time. So it seems like some of the local people did know some things. Yeah, well, I suppose it's all part of his quite lecherous and flirtatious um, personality and persona, wasn't it? Like some some people did find it acceptable. You know, some women just thought it was Jimmy being Jimmy, and that's quite acceptable. But again, I think that's all that's that's all how he camouflages himself, isn't it? If he's like that with everybody constantly then people are less likely to notice him when he does cross that line. So I think it's all intentional. So Ant is wondering whether um, you saw him tell Louis Thoreau that he had an altar in his flat. So was perhaps Savile into devil worship? I mean, there was a lot of symbolism, pyramids, weird rings, Masonic stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, I don't think he was into Satanism. He was actually quite religious on one on some level, wasn't he? So I think it's unlikely. It might, might have been an inversion of what he was pretending, religious. All right, so uh, Ray, Dr. Sholm, did, did you see the disturbing footage of Savile with Gary Glitter with a girl? And if so, what, what did you think of that? I think I've seen some still shots of it, but I don't think I've seen the actual footage. Have you? Was it, was it, were they yeah. on stage of a, of a game show or something? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. It's it's disgusting, and uh, with with hindsight, it's particularly reprehensible. Um, Anthony's asking whether in Broadmoor they had Savile's armchair. Did you come across Savile's armchair in Broadmoor? <laughs> no, I, I certainly didn't. But the one thing I would say is it's it's quite. You can't just walk around in Broadmoor. So uh, obviously, you get your own set of keys, but every everything's kind of um, really well organized and, and you, there's a certain flow of the areas that you go to. And I wouldn't say you're not allowed into other areas, but you'd be looked at weirdly and you'd be certainly questioned if you were in an area that you didn't work in for the, for, for good reason. You know, it's supposed to be a high secure hospital. You're supposed to have as, as little kind of unnecessary travel or, fl or flow through as possible. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is I've not looked in every single clinical room, but if we if it was there, I don't think they would have advertised it as such. So I, I might have seen it and not known what it was. Thanks for the new membership, Jason. And a question from TT. Do you think there are enough safety <laughs> checks in place today to stop other Savills from falling through the cracks? Uh, safety checks, yes. But any system, regardless of its, if it's this particular area topic or anything else, is only as good as the people working in it isn't it so you know you can have dbd checks and you can have hr departments and you can have like a complaint system for whistleblowing these things exist 
but if people don't use them or if managers uh, are um, put pressure on on people on their staff not to complain or not to raise um, not to raise any issues or if there's a culture of misogyny then it doesn't matter if they exist or not uh, these things are swept under the carpet and, and accepted so I don't think the problem is that we don't have systems in place the problem is that systems aren't followed properly. Lisa's wondering whether you think there are parallels between Michael Jackson allegedly and Savile. Um, yeah I suppose there are I mean you know, it, it, she said allegedly. Let's let's work on the assumption that the allegations mm -hmm. against Michael Jackson are true. If they are true, then they're both uh, obviously attracted to a certain type of victim. Well, that's actually supposed to be slightly different, aren't they? Jimmy Savile's were mainly young but older women, whereas Michael Jackson allegedly were younger boys. But they're both you know hugely famous, get a lot of attention, and known for uh, doing sort of charitable work or being around children. Uh, and, you know, probably would have parents that would want their kids who didn't know what they were allegedly doing, but would want their kids to be around these two particular individuals. So I suppose there are quite a few parallels. I don't think Michael Jackson was particularly charming or creepy, but he was just so kind of famous that he would still have access to lots of different children without having to charm people. Question from Seago, and I'm told Seago that unleashed there will be a section tomorrow on locals. Um, why aren't these TV studios ever culpable? They facilitate these people by omission or by lack of implementation of security. Um, I think that they they are they're found culpable, but it was like I was saying before, because the staff has changed and because it all happened quite a long time ago, it is hard to kind of. Well, it's, it's easy for, for them to carry on existing and to kind of pass the block and say, you know, this is not acceptable and it doesn't reflect our current values, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, but also they're quite powerful. You know, people who, something like the BBC, which is like a British institution, it's not easy to, to take it down, really. Just like the royal family, I guess. Gemini is wondering why he didn't confess on his deathbed to the priest. Gemini, I'd just like to say, Savile doesn't strike me as the type to confess to anybody as far as he was concerned, he'd gotten away with it and he had gotten away with it for his lifetime. So that for him was probably mission accomplished. He probably didn't give a shit what happened um, thereafter because he wasn't going to be around. Yeah, yeah. And also simply because he was probably too sort of, you know, ashamed to actually want to have to say it aloud to somebody. Did Savile possess unique character traits to be able to manipulate the masses? Yeah, so I think it was a mixture of his own personality. He was kind of, you know, quite bubbly. He was quite quick. So especially in The Reckoning, he always had like a bit of banter and a bit of a comeback for everybody around him. So I think part of it was his character traits. I think also in the unique position that he was in because he was ultra, ultra famous. He was heading all these TV shows. And remember, this is in an era where you didn't have things like, you know, YouTube or social media or influencers. You only had like four channels back then, I believe, on TV. So if you're on prime time in one of those channels, especially if you have multiple shows, then you're automatically one of the most famous people in the country. So I think it was a combination of opportunity and his own charm that he was able to manipulate. What was the link between his offending from the outset and his accomplishment in worldly subjects? What held him back as a coal mining DJ? I didn't quite get that. What was the link between his offending from the outset and his accomplishment? Well, I think the more he accomplished, the more he could offend and the more access he had to people. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So both in terms of physically being able to access more victims because he was invited to more and more charity events, hospital uh, day trips, et cetera, et cetera. But also his, as his level of fame grew, I think people were less likely to ever complain against him, to ever believe that he was a predator and more people, especially kids, wanted to meet him. So it's a combination of all of those things, I think. Do you think his mother wondered what an evil child she had produced? So in the reckoning, I th I, it was hinted at, wasn't it? I don't think she ever yeah. out, said it outright, but she kind of hinted that she thought that that there was a lot of darkness going on. Um, I don't know whether she actually did ever know the extent in real life. I presume not, because why would he, why would he ever want to disclose it to her? But then again, they did spend a lot of time together, so maybe she did, you know, see some some of his behaviour. What do you think? Do you know anything about what his mother knew? Again, they were going on cruises together and they were spending all this time together. And it seems to me that he was a proper mummy's boy. So I think this tension they've created in the dramatization, I don't know what it's based on because I have read Dan Davies' book and he doesn't mention any of this either. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose... Jimmy Savile is savvy enough to know to tone down his behaviour when his mother's around. Yeah. Yeah, like we saw, one minute he's out jogging, accosting someone. Next minute he's back, you know, mummy's boy time. All right, yeah. so Kim J. Um, Dr. Das, did you ever feel frightened or creeped out by anyone in Broadmoor? <laughs> hmm. Actually, um, the answer is no, surprisingly. So I, I've worked in medium secure units for far more uh, of my career, Broadmoor being a, a high secure hospital. And I have to say that Broadmoor felt a lot more contained and calmer and safer than medium secure units because the patients in there um, are so potentially risky that there's a lot more resources around them. So in the in the ward that I worked in, they were most of them were in long term seclusion. So they were mostly kept in their in their rooms, and they were released in short periods with lots of nursing staff around them. And there was a really thorough kind of assessment of their mental state before they were before they were allowed out. Whereas in medium secure units, it's a much more kind of free for all. Patients are always outside of their room. They're coming in and out. They're moving around a lot more. Uh, and also because of the nature of the patients in Broadmoor. Uh, every member of staff, myself included, is encouraged to thoroughly read the background of any patient before you interact with them. So I knew a lot more about the individuals. Um, so it felt really quite secure and safe. I'm not saying there weren't incidents, there were, but they were less often and the proportion of staff members, nurses, for example, to patients was much higher than other psychiatric units. So it was kind of dealt with really quickly. So we're at 30 minutes, Dr. Das. I'm going to keep going, but I believe you've got to step down at this point. I do I've got a couple of questions for you. Go for it. <laughs> um, in terms of one of the things we talked about in last time was I was I was a bit unsure about the representation of the actual victims. It felt to back then it felt to me that it just felt a bit added on, kind of tacked on into the end of onto the end of episodes. I feel a bit different about about it now because the, the episodes since then have had more of them actually speaking. So, what's your kind of view on the way that? the victims were involved? Do you think it worked or not? I think there should have been more emphasis and more detail as to the consequences of what he'd done to their lives. You know, the majority of it was on his life. Mm, yeah. uh, they should have they should have increased that. Like you said earlier about, you know, whatever, however it manifested, alcoholism, drug addiction, harming themselves, etc. I think that would have made it more hard-hitting. Uh, yeah. The fact that it didn't show what actually happened with him 
it left it to imagination was quite strong because you, you I was like closing my eyes almost just thinking, oh, this is, oh, you know, but the, the, the Boy Scout, uh, the girl in the church, you just, oh, you just, this is so disgusting right now what's happening. Um, so that was, that was punchy. And then it did over time, as we heard from more and more of the survivors, uh, especially the one with the colored hair. I can't remember what her name was. Um, Sam, was it? Was it? She was one of the Duncroft okay. schoolgirls. Yeah, and you know, as 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 you realise which character they were in the dramatisation, so over time it did build emotion. I thought, but but perhaps they could have done more. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Cheers for having me on, Sean. It's always a pleasure. All right, and viewers, check out Dr. Shahom Das's YouTube channel. Link is in the description box, as are the links to his socials and books, etc. And hope to see you again soon, my friend. So you take care. You too. Bye, everybody. See ya. Cheers. Bye. Right. So I'm going to keep going. And what I've tried to do in previous episodes is flesh out what we've heard on that evening's episode. You know, we fleshed out the story of the girl who ended her life. Like I said, we've interviewed Kelly Gold, her friend. We're going to put that interview up soon. And I'm going to flesh out more about the police interview um, with the rest of the time we've got. I know I've got a question on the screen from Jan C. Any link with Savile and Fred West? They thought West had invited others to the barn when he killed people. Could they have been VIPs? Maybe why he died in prison? Um, well, we did link and get a lot more detail about the relationship of Savile with... Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. We got that detail from John Wedger, ex-Scotland Yard detective, London Met Cop. If you haven't seen that podcast, it went out about three days ago. I think it's almost got 50K views on it right now. It's doing really well. And it's called, Was Jimmy a Fixer for the Elites? So if you want more details about that side of it and about the devil-worshipping side of it, Wedger really gets into it. He also speculates as well that Savile's mum might have been a witch. Yep. So the interview ended up being done by Surrey Police. I'm here in Guildford, Surrey. Police headquarters are not so far from where I'm based. And it came about after a few of the Duncroft schoolgirls, they changed the name of the school in, in the reckoning. Uh, the real name is the Duncroft School for the girls. And several of the girls filed reports with the cops. Now, because these girls were considered naughty girls back then who had issues, they weren't taken seriously. And when you saw the interview commence today in episode four of The Reckoning, you saw how the women were, oh, thanks for letting us have interview you in your office here at Stoke Mandeville. Is it all right if we call you Jimmy, blah, blah, blah. Now that is all completely correct. So I'm going to go over the entire interview for the balance of this live stream. So we can see exactly what was said. And I found it quite fascinating how Savile keeps his cool, 
but also issues veiled threats, especially threats about anyone who's going to do, try to damage his reputation and they're going to take them to court because he just loves, he just loves going to the Old Bailey. So yeah, the girls at Duncraft were from uh, wealthy families. We've got this in the comments here. Uh, above average intelligence, indeed. Um, but but they did have problems and that, that's why they were sent to the school, which made them vulnerable and ideal targets for the monster. All right, so let's go over this interview then, shall we, together? So I work at Child Protection. What's your full name? James Wilson Savile. Is it okay to call you Jimmy? Jimmy, that's me. That's me name. Yes. Thank you. And Jimmy, can you confirm date of birth? Um, gives it, that makes me 83. I'm proud that in 83 years, I've never, ever done anything wrong. Cop says, okay. That doesn't mean to say that in my business, you don't get accused of just about everything because people are looking for a bit of blackmail or the papers are looking for a story. So they keep going up. But if you've got a clear conscience, which I have, everything's okay. Cop says, lovely, thank you. Okay, also present is, da-da-da, uh, lovely, just confirmed. Jimmy, that it was your request um, that so-and-so is present with you and you're happy for anything to be discussed in front of him. Um, okay, okay, lovely, that's fine. I just wanted to clarify. Yes, okay, then they give the date, they give the location, uh, Stoke Mandeville, and they talk about facilitating communication. Uh, I understand if Jim wants my opinion, I would say not to answer any questions about first speaking to a solicitor, but certainly up to him, of course. So they had, Jim had a, a male in the room with him. Didn't show that, did it? Um, yeah, we'll get to that. All right, I'm quite happy to answer questions because if you've done nothing wrong, then you're okay. If somebody alleges you've done something, but I've had so much of it in 50 years, it started in the 1950s. And it's always either someone looking for a few quid or story for the paper. What we'll do, Jimmy, I'm not being rude stopping you there, right? I will give you a chance to say, but it's just important that I get the introduction bit done. So sorry to interrupt you. See how apologetic they are. Just really, you know, just, just bowing over to the mighty Jimmy Savile uh, being in the room with them. Um, all right, so... I will give you a chance to say, but it's just important to get introduction done. Sorry to interrupt you. Right, well, get the introduction bit done. You didn't interrupt me. He's just in control, isn't he, from the get-go? Just on that point, that important point that X made, I would be saying to you that this interview is what we call an out-of-custody interview. Yes. So you're not under arrest, Jimmy, and you are free to leave at any time. I should hope not. But you are still entitled to free and independent legal advice. Do you understand this? Yes. And did you want to have a solicitor present? No, not at all. Okay, as stated, anytime you want this stopped, it stops. No, you do your job. Okay, and I'll help you do your job. Cop, so just before I make you aware of what's been alleged, I'll just read out the caution to you. And the caution is that you don't have to say anything. It can have your defense, etc. I'll say everything. Yeah, okay, basically any police investigation has the potential to go to court. Not everything does, sure. But if something should and you didn't answer a question today and you did at court, they might say, why didn't you answer the first time round? 
And the last part, anything you do say may be given in evidence. It's just being tape recorded. Sure. Just to reassure you, at the end of these tapes, we'll get sealed up. We'll sign and seal them. And they get stored in a secure place at Staines Police Station. Oh, what a pity, he says. Wow. Okay, so the reason for this interview, as I say, I work at Child Protection Team. I received reports from a lady called Beep. She reported to me that when she was a resident of Duncroft Children's Home in Staines, which was a Bernardo's home in the late 1970s, she was told by another girl that when Jimmy Savile visited, he touched her over her clothes and then beep. Oh, out of the question. And he would tell her he would buy her chocolates when she got to the age of 16. Out of the question. Both girls were under 16 when seeing Jimmy behave inappropriately. He said he put her hand on his groin over his clothes, moved it around, making him aroused. So making further inquiries, I became aware of two further incidents that were reported. Another unknown person was also at Duncraft. She stated she was asked to show the visitor Jimmy Savile around, and he asked her to comb his hair, then massage him. Not true, none of it. Then massage his groin area and give him oral. Oh, out of the question. And she refused, and finally the last one stated when she aged, she was in the girls' choir. They attended a concert at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. Jimmy was present. As she left the area, he kissed her on the lips and put his tongue in her mouth. Out of the question. So those are the three sort of main allegations. So tell me what you know about any of these reported allegations. Right. The main allegations are completely fictional. In fact, they are made up. You can tell they're made up anyway. In your letter, you referred to Duncroft as a children's home, which it wasn't. It was a posh borstal. Because what could happen? All the girls who were there through the courts and under the circumstances, if a parent could afford, instead of a girl being sent to a borstal, normal borstal, they could actually pay for them to go to this place. And it was an experiment run by Dr. Bernardo's. And of course, this was a godsend for the parents because when questioned where their daughter is, she's at school in Staines, they say, because there, although it says this is inaudible, right, I went there. Now, that was a great day. We all had the first time I ever went there. And then, of course, me being everything I do everywhere that I go turns into an animal, right? So would then ring me up because I live just around the corner, Grosvenor, and four miles away. And she said, we got a party or a beep or something, an excuse. Can you call in? And there's no chance for anything that you described to happen, say, because there's never less than 30, 40 people all milling around. And so you can't do things like you've just suggested. So that's why I know, A, I wouldn't do anything like that anyway. And B, it's a made-up story. And what can you do with a made-up story? Cop. Okay, thank you. What I've done is sort of prepared topic areas. So you've covered some of those already. So if I just work through them, and then we can just as much as you want to say down, what I was going to start with was, if you could think back to the 1970s, late 1970s, and concentrate on your charity work, 
and general work which you were doing around that time, what do you remember doing? I've been doing it for 70 years, and this is part of it. But do you remember specifically what you were doing at that time? Appreciate it's a bit of a time ago. In the 1970s, I was living then life like I live today. Yep. Were there any specific, because you've obviously quite heavily involved in this hospital now and have been for a number of years? Leeds Infirmary and Broadmoor. But was there a specific charity or thing you were involved with at the time? No. Complete. Well, I've done since I started. I grew up in a charity type family. But my parents, bless them, didn't have any money. So they would do whilst drives, whist drives and stuff like that. And anything, a pound for a charity, that was the lot. When I got to be well known, it was obvious that it was easier for me to make money but I quite enjoyed helping people. The reward for helping people is sometimes you get like a situation like this, for instance, when helping people. I go to Duncraft. You are very nice because you can see the friendly way that I am. And all of a sudden, somebody turns around and bites your leg. And it's the same at Leeds Infirmary. It's the same here. So I would be engaged in the day-to-day workings of a lifestyle because from, I don't reckon up how much I have raised, but the newspapers do. And about three or four years ago, they worked out that raised just over 40 million pounds. Ain't no big deal. It's just a way of life. And the wages for raising 40 million pounds, it's just something just going to knock you on the head. So in the late 1970s, were you, as you say, as you got more well-known, that you were able to raise more money? Were you on television at that point? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did 42 years on Top of the Pops. Did the very first one and the very last one. I did 36 years on Radio 1. And when you're doing Top of the Pops and Radio 1, what you don't do is assault women. They assault you, that's for sure. And you don't have to because you've got plenty of girls about and all that. So dealing with something like this is out of the question and totally wrong, full stop. So at that time... When these women have alleged it's happened, you would have been a well-known celebrity. Oh, crumbs. Yes, yes, I was on television when it was black and white. So I've been 50 years on TV this year and a lot better when you have to work down the pit. I started off like working down the pit. So being on TV is a lot better. I don't know about the linking it to the pit there. Were you linked in any way to Dr. Bernardo's as a charity? No, never. But I will have done things for them. Because I don't have any specific charity as such. I support on a yearly basis according to the Charity Commission. I will give money to at least 50 separate charities. I specialize in smaller ones. I don't specialize in what I call the glossies. Because the glossies there, the big ones with multi-millions of pounds and things like that, they have enough. I don't bother with them. What I do, for instance, is support local cricket clubs. And I've just brought the lady the bottle of champagne that somebody gave me with my name on it as memorabilia. So I'm forever bringing this. And if anybody wants anything, oh, we've got this. Jim, can you do this? Yes, certainly. So I do at least 50 charities a year, but nothing specific. Okay, 
And you've answered the next question for me already about whether you attended the Bernardo's home in Staines because you sort of said that. I'll cover that in a second. First of all, is there anything that you want to cover on the charity work and general work topics? Not at this stage. So just moving on to Duncraft, which you said you were aware it was a Bernardo's project you described it as. I didn't know it was a Bernardo's project when I went there. I didn't really know it was a Borstal. Have you been there and you said you have, then it's redacted. Do you remember what year that was? No. I know it's a lot to ask. No, 100 years ago. Do you remember it being around the time of the late 1970s? Yeah, it could have been. I don't. I take it on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it could be. It could be the 70s. Yep, it probably wouldn't be the 60s. No, it would be the 70s. Yeah, okay, thank you. And you said that you went along, so you went along there, and you said after that it became an annual thing. No, I say it turns into what I call an annual, because when I go there, you can see the effect. Um, sure, okay, and how would you get there from your place in Broadmoor to Staines? Drive. And what were you driving around that time? Do you remember? Oh, I don't know. I kept swapping cars. haven't the faintest idea. It could be. Bearing in mind, I live in the north of England, so I keep most of my vehicles in the north, but I keep one down here for running about. So at that time, I would have had a Rolls Royce. Take your pick, anything. And would you drive that yourself, or would you get someone to accompany you to these things? No, drive myself. Did you ever have anyone accompany you or go with you to these events like a chauffeur? Not really, no. So you didn't have a chauffeur or no. And your roller, yes, like it is everywhere. I've done three jobs this week, which I've actually been looking to try because at 83, you don't take too kindly to rushing around. Do you understand? I've done 216 sponsored marathons, which is a lot of marathons. And I've all been toying with the idea of cooling it. Unfortunately, Nobody else has that idea because they say, well, can you come to so-and-so? I'll say, well, it's a bit of a long way. We'll send the car for you. In other words, they've got everything ready set up for you, yes? And the terrible th thing is I actually enjoy it because if you're going, they're bringing sunshine into people's lives. You've got plenty of their own. And when you see some of my patients here, you see this sort of thing, I consider to be a skid in the car driving along. All of a sudden, you skid like that right now. Nine times out of ten, a skid will correct itself, and you keep going, but the tenth time it won't. And I've got plenty of patients here whose skids didn't correct it, which means a nothing can turn into a something. So this is why I take this sort of thing very, very seriously, because it's a nothing it's nothing, totally, but it's like a skid. If it goes wrong, it turns into a something, and all of a sudden, that's not good. So that's why I take everything seriously, and I'll tell you what I've done about it, because this is what you guys are doing about it, but I've done something about it all, already about it, which is a policy of mine, but I'll tell you when you're finished. And you made note that they were all girls and you described it like a Borstal type place. 
Yes, well, it's because they're all there through the courts in those days. I don't know if it's the same today, but in those days, if there was a decision in court that required a custodial sentence in those days, if the parents were given the opportunity and they had the money, they could pay for them to go to Duncroft. So it was a sort of an experiment. At Broadmoor, we were quite intrigued with that because our people just get banged up and that's all there is to it, to it you know. But I thought it was a good idea because here you've got people whose teenagers are wayward and I always thought that they should be one like that for lads but there was only one for girls. And then Dr. Bernardo's then passed it on to an organization called Mind and Mind ran it for several years but they didn't seem to have the, when people, when management go, the new people don't necessarily fly the flag like the first one did. And so it fell into no good and eventually it was sold. But it was indeed a sort of luxury type borstal, a children's home it wasn't, not at all. But it was called a children's home because it was better for the neighbours. It was better for everyone. But in Staines, oh, young people in Staines, they would cross the road and walk round the other side because they got hoisted in. So a children's home it wasn't, and a sort of borstal it was, and I thought it was a terrific idea. And what would you do there, obviously? Eat your lunch and have tea? Yes, just what do you do? I mean, it's like us. We have a cup of tea down there. You chat, 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 and then wander about and go and powder your nose or something like that, and then the day goes by. And again, I appreciate it was a bit of a time ago, but do you remember the sort of layout? Can you sort of picture it in your head? Yeah, it was a stately home. It was a small stately home with big, enormous grounds with a wall all the way around. And of course, it lent itself to being a lockup because you couldn't see it from the road. It had bars at the windows, bars at the door. The staff used to walk around with bunches of keys, just like we did at Broadmoor. So the common room, was there a sort of TV in there that you remember? I can't remember if there was. I don't think there was actually. Is there a separate TV room anywhere? No, I'm not sure there was a TV, come to think of it now. I can't ever remember seeing a TV in there. Okay, and obviously the grounds you described as big grounds. Yep. So when you went there, what kind of contact would you have with the girls when you were there? Talk to them, because the staff used to mingle, the girls used to mingle, and it was just talking, they'd be asking me questions about the pop world and all that sort of stuff, because the staff would be asking me more questions about the pop world than the girls were, actually. And I think you made reference to this earlier, that there was about up to about 30, 40 people there at a time, was there ever a time you had a one-to-one with a staff member or a girl? No, never, never, never. Because you've got 30 or 40 people. It's like they're, they're, like they're, they're all milling about. Security, isn't it? Yep, finish up. Um, there's just one other thing. Do you want to cover the about the dining room? Was there a dining room there at Duncraft? Yes, there was, there was, yes. So that was separate from like the common room. Yeah, but it was a big stately home, right? And so they had a dining room there and sort of a what you could call as a lounge or as a day room or as whatever. 
and that was it all it was and the when you said you have lunch or tea there where would you have that which room would you have it in in the dining room yes so it was one that was used yes everybody ate together okay everyone together so that would be staff and clients yes thank you okay so moving into the allegations the first one was the girl mentioned that she saw never can't remember the name and obviously i don't do things like that never have done so she said it happened what she called the tv room at duncraft did you go into the tv room i guess or common room on any occasion not on a one-to-one -one basis no and i can specifically say that that's not my nature and it never happened and it is a fabrication why on earth anybody would want a fabrication i don't know probably because it's coming up for christmas and they're looking for a few quid off a newspaper if you're tuning in we're going over the police interview of sorry please and jimmy savile so the cop said so did you sit next to a girl called x uh who she saw at the time do you remember sitting next to her no not at all i don't even remember the name and i can't remember anybody any of the girls and then there's something redacted does that jog your memory um, no not at all no i'd be the last person they would tell anyway <clears throat> it was said that she had a blanket over her knee you went under the blanket no ridiculous in front of 30 in front of all the people what are you talking about ridiculous the way they described it is they were sort of watching tv in the common room no not at all they said did you take her hand and place it on your groin area over your clothes no no did you then move her hand around causing you to become aroused no not at all not at all it's starting to sound like the mad hatter's tea party this is there any sort of situation you could think of like mucking around or joking where they could have misinterpreted this no you don't do that in the lockup and you don't do that with girls like that have to ask you as if it had happened so if that had happened did you get gratification from this girl touching you out of the question never happened that was a non-question and then the police moves on to the second allegation this is the one that x said she said when you visited duncraft she showed you across to a place called norman lodge which i think was a little side bit of it this is what she said nod as you took her over there i can't even remember that as far as i was concerned there was just one building and that's all there was to it nobody would take you anywhere i mean i'm just saying what she said so she said as she took you over there that you asked for massages from the girls oh out of the question so did you ask for a massage from the girls when you visited duncroft not at all never so whether it would be it was sort of head and shoulders no never 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 did you ask them to comb your hair at all no not at all bearing in mind i was in the business 
were the was a million girls, which was the pop business. You didn't have to go to these people for that sort of thing. It was out of the question. I think you've already answered this by saying you didn't know that there was only one building. Did you go to a separate part of the home at Duncraft called Norman Lodge? No, I've never heard of it before. Did you offer a girl a job at Stoke Mandeville Hospital as a nurse? Nope, not at all. Never. It wouldn't work that way. If a nurse comes here, she has to apply an extra thing like that. And it would never occur to me to say to a girl, well, I can get you a job. The NHS is not like that, but I've never heard of her anyway. Did you ask her to give you what she calls a oral, let's just say, um, by asking her to put your beep in her mouth so she could get this job? Out of the question. Obviously, if you can't remember, this next question may not be appropriate. But do you believe her to be older than 16? So the girls at the home, how old do you remember them being? I reckon that the girls there, they all came from court, right? How old is a girl when she gets nicked and finishes up in court and finishes up with a custodial sentence? It could be 16, 19. They all look because they were unbelievable as a team and the accents were immaculate. They all came from wealthy parents. So you didn't really bother whether they were 16, what the hell they were, because they all seemed like adults and they all acted like adults. And I, as I said, thought the idea of putting them somewhere like that was much better than banging them up in a nick because you bang them up in the nick and you're really asking for trouble then with young people. So, did you ask any girl at Duncraft to perform a beep act? Never. Did you specifically go to Duncraft knowing it was an all-girls place to receive gratification? No. Out of the question. That is a complete flight of fancy and fantasy. Did you use your TV or radio status to request this? No, not at all. Never, never done this in my life. Out of the question. Okay, anything else on that allegation? No. So next allegation. Um, I can't remember any relative. I can remember occasionally parents used to come. Very rarely. The only one came very rarely. Um, she said, were this happened, this was worse. She'd alleged that you've kissed her on the mouth and put your tongue in her mouth. No, out of the question. She said this happened when she was in the girls' choir and she came to Stoke Mandeville Hospital to a concert that, no, what was happened was about 1983, it was. Yeah, that's right. What happened was, here we get people come, for instance, today, there's a little jewellery sale down in the foyer and people do things. And I walked in here one day, a long time ago, and I said, not many people about, and the lads, the porter lad shows up, says, no, it's local girls choir here. So I said, oh, right. And they were going to sing down in a room at the far end. So I wandered down there, of course. There was much excitement. And I walked in because they knew I worked here as a porter, right? Oh, it's Jimmy Savile. So I had pictures taken with them, but I mean, there was at least 40 of them in the choir. So I wonder if anybody's going to kiss somebody in the lips 
and stick their tongue down their throat is ridiculous. So that's one occasion you've met with the girls' choir. Did you meet them on another occasion? No, 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 just the once. And they were singing here to the patients. Did you have dinner with the girls' choir here? No, never, 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 ever had a tea with them. Even had a tea with them. The girl, she's now a woman, said that after dinner that you messed around with the girls before they got on the coach to return. Not at all. How can you mess around with 40 girls? She said that during that sort of messing around, you grabbed hold of her, you kissed her on the mouth, and that's when you put your tongue in her mouth. Impossible. Untrue. Impossible. Okay, anything on that last one? No. So this is what I've classed as anything else. So there's certain questions because of the nature of the allegation I have to ask you. Are you attracted to girls under 16? No, exactly the opposite. Were you attracted to girls under 16 in the late 70s, in the early 90s? No, they have nothing to offer insofar as they didn't even have much of a conversation. So I'm not socially attracted to them at all. And that's why I never got married anyway, because I wasn't particularly keen on accepting the responsibility of another person. And I enjoyed being on my own anyway. Have you ever SA'd any girl under 16? Never, never. And in relation to these girls, did you ever SA a girl at Duncraft? First of all, I don't know who you're talking about. Second of all, I've never SA'd anybody. So the answer to that would be no. Did you ask to perform oral on you at Duncraft? Oh, why would anybody do that? The answer to that is no, not at all. And the observation is, where on earth could you actually do that in front of 40 people? And finally, did you essay by placing your tongue in her mouth at Stoke Mandeville? Not at all, not at all, complete fantasy. And my last question, which I know you want to sort of touch on, why would those girls say this about you? This is, this is where he talks at length now and it gets interesting, more interesting. Well, in 50 years in showbiz, we showbiz people get accused of just about everything. One of the reasons is people are looking for money and they will try blackmail and they will write letters saying, if you don't send us money, I will say you've done this and you've done that. So that's why... There is a group of people who just like causing trouble because we get plenty of that anyway. They just like causing trouble. Now that's why I have in Yorkshire, where I live in Leeds, a collection of senior police persons who come to see me socially. They came to see him socially for 20 plus years is weekly lunches. West Yorkshire police. And this is his, he's wielding the stick now after being, you know, answering the questions. But I give them all my weirdo letters and they take them back to the station. Oh, have you seen what Jimmy got today? And this, that and the other. So the answer to the question, why would they want to do it? You'd have to ask them and you'd have to get a psychologist to see why they did it. You would be amazed at the depth they go to. 
and the intelligence they go to. I got a letter here from a girl who lived in somewhere down in Devonway. And she said, dear Jimmy, you are very naughty. You left the window open last night when you got up. I've never been to in my life, you see. And so that caused, I gave that letter to the girls here. About five, six weeks later, I got a letter. Would you believe from a consultant, a doctor? Can you tell me your intentions with regards to my patient? This is a place I've never been to, a person I've never knew. My girls here were furious. And they said, well, look, we don't, you know, we'll let you answer um, this letter because the man's a doctor, is a lunatic. So I said, yes. So the girls here answered. And I've never heard from him since. But it's this sort of thing, which is quite, it's quite amazing, really. Wearing my Broadmoor hat, I don't find it amazing at all. Because wearing the Broadmoor hat, people do strange things the strangest of strange things. And if they do, they do it. Why they do it is who the hell knows. Even doctors don't know why they do it. I don't know. But you've got to be prepared that they will do it. And ever since, like being on TV and radio, stuff like that, there's always been people who think that you're an easy touch for a few quid. You started at the very beginning of the interview mentioning your policy on this sort of thing. Is that what you're referring to? Policy? What policy? You said you had a policy on how to deal with certain things. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But I'll come to that in a minute. But you guys have got to do a job. You're doing the job. Um, let's see. Next page. Du -du -du -du. So, part two of recorded interviews, normal introductions are carried out. Uh, questions, let's see. I think this is asking more of the same stuff. Doctor of Law. Okay. All right, here's another one of his big answers. Um, could you please explain your policy? They had to, they had to redo the formalities. That's why I'm just skipping over that. Could you please then explain your policy? Yes, I take this sort of thing very seriously. I've done right from the 1950s when it started because instinct tells me that whereas it's a nothing, I know there's a nothing can turn into a something because I've got many patients here at Stoke Mandeville where a nothing, a skid in the car. Oh, actually, we've done we've already done that bit, haven't we? Let's see. Um, oh, yeah, the old Bailey. The old Bailey, get to the old Bailey. He, he does this. He says the skid in the car answer again, but it's it's good where he threatens him with the old Bailey. This is where he gets particularly indicative of the consequences of going up against him. Right. So his policy will swing into action at the same time. But the difference with my policy is that my people who are one of the initials after my name is L-O-D. That's a doctor of law, right? Not an ornery one, a real one. That gives me, how shall we say, friends. And if I was going to sue anybody, which I never actually got round to actually suing because they all run away and say, shush, pay him up. We go not to the local court. We go to the Old Bailey. Because my people can book time in the Old Bailey. So my legal people are ready and waiting. 
All they need would be a name and an address, and then the due process from my angle would stop. Because obviously, if I'm prepared to take someone to court and put it in front of a judge, then there can't be very much wrong with my policy of behavior because I've never done anybody any harm in my entire life because there's not need to, no need to, no need to chase girls. I have thousands of them on top of the pops, thousands on Radio 1. No need to take liberties with them, out of the question. And anyway, it's not my nature because all my life I've been a semi-pro athlete with 216 marathons over 300 professional bike races and when I was fighting 107 pro fights that I had so socially and I don't drink never taken a drug in my life ever in fact from a newspaper point of view I'm very boring they consider me dreadfully boring because I don't do anything I have a terrific time but I don't do anything I don't drink no booze no drugs no kinky carryings on don't go to brothels or anything like that didn't even know where one was. So the tabloids consider me very, very boring. But because I take everything seriously, I've even now alerted my legal team. They may be doing business. And if we do, then you ladies will finish up at the old Bailey. So now he's like letting them know, as well as everyone else, because we want you there as witnesses. Yeah, only a bit of fun, but nobody ever seems to want to go that far because the prospect of me being one side of the court and the accuser or the newspaper are on the other side of the court and the man in the middle who happens to be one of us. What did I get from the sun? This is actually not dissimilar to, do you remember that thing a few months ago, that house in the place in Jersey where the dead bodies that never were, so there's something doing with that. I visited everywhere in the British Isles. And so they had a picture of me, about six Jersey councillors standing on the steps of the, like that, right, for a garden fate or something like that. Headline, Sir Jimmy in the house of hell, you see. So that could be argued in court as malicious, right? They had a sudden rush of conscience, did the son, and they sent a report around with a 400-pound box of cigars. Sorry about that, Jim. So sometimes... The time before I've had them, and it cost them like £200,000 because they were out of order. And I, I'm known in the trade as litigious because, which means to say that I'm willing to pull people into court straight away. No messing. Thank you. Now, if you're litigious, people get quite nervous, actually, because for somebody that don't want to go to court, I love it. Get into court right what happened. Oh, dear. I've been wronged, your worship. Wronged. Oh, oh, dreadful. Oh, bang. £200,000 or whatever. Five times I've done that. I'd rather not. I'd rather not. I'm not a clever clogs or anything like that. What I'd really like to do is go out up the dales, have a walk, go training, this, that, and the other. But my business won't let you do that. My business, there's women looking for a few quid. We always get something like this coming up for Christmas because we want a few quid for Christmas, right? And normally you can brush them away like midges and it's not much of a price to pay for the lifestyle that we're getting. You know what I mean? I own this hospital. NHS run it. I own it. That's not bad. Seeing I started off life down the pit, not bad. And when they see the faces 
and you go in there and suddenly they smile paralyzed and hello jim you're here today that's worth all the money all the tea in china and one of the reasons that i get that i take it seriously because i wouldn't let anything get out of hand to run the risk of spoiling things for my people here because if i wasn't here they wouldn't get the quarter of a million pounds a year that they need to keep it going and there's nobody these days of that caliber can do that so as i would like to retire at 83 i mean how the hell i'm going to keep going on at 80 bleeding you know i want to retire but the world won't let you retire and then of course you get that you don't want to when you walk down and see people we'll go and see people in a minute so he's talking about showing them around the hospital giving them a tour okay so jimmy is there anything you want to add about the duncraft or the girls choir no not at all it's all complete fantasy it really 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 is and neither thing was a place where you could get away with what they said you've got away with and i won't want to do it in the first place complete fantasy okay then i've asked everything we want if i just end the interview there it's 11 40 and i shall stop the tape right interview stops there and no doubt savile had tea with the cops schmoozed them shown them around the hospital introduced them to some of his favorite patients and then that poor girl as you saw in episode four of the reckoning this evening the poor girl who had the bravery to stand up to him and file the police report when she got older after she watched him on big brother she then got the no further action letter how sad was that absolutely disgusting so I just wanted to add in there a bit more meat to the bones of what you saw in today's episode. And we did have Christian Walmer podcast tonight, two hours, Savile and the Co-Home Kids. We've literally had about 10 uh, hour plus Savile videos out in the last week. Um, the Untouchable was relaunched, the almost four hour documentary. Wedger is um, riding high was Savile a fixer for the elites we had Boris and Christopher Berry D talking about Broadmoor and the relations with the corpses Wedger went into the satanic side of it as well and we had Christian Walmer he's written 20 books he's written a book about the co-homes tonight he did it about the co-home kids and we did an hour just over an hour with Matthew Steeples um, last night as well so there's tons more Savile content if you want to get into the different areas on the channel. And thank you for tuning in this evening. Atwood Unleashed is back tomorrow at 5.45. And I'm told by Ash that there's definitely going to be a locals section on the um, band content from YouTube. All right. Take care, everyone. Good night. Much love and respect. Hope to see some of you in the chat tomorrow for Atwood Unleashed.